You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is writer, radio producer, and journalist Stephanie Fu. If you listen to the radio, you have almost certainly encountered her work. After graduating from UC Santa Cruz in just two years, she joined the staff of Snap Judgment, first as an intern, then as a full-time producer, before she moved to New York to work on This American Life. But Stephanie's numerous accomplishments and accolades hid an intense internal struggle that ultimately led her to leave her dream job. In 2018, she was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Earlier this month, she published What My Bones Know, a memoir that chronicles her journey to understand and heal from CPTSD following her diagnosis. It is a powerful and deeply personal story that sheds light on an under-researched, poorly understood, and off-stigmatized illness. Stephanie Fu, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Technically, it was two and a half years, but... (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, I'd like to start by asking you to say a bit about CPTSD. What is it, and how is it different, both from the PTSD that most people are aware of and from the stereotypes or assumptions people might have? Yeah, so I think most people might have the assumption that PTSD is a warrior's disease, um, that it's associated with people who have like ridden over IEDs in Afghanistan, which simply isn't true. Uh, PTSD is really common in the United States, and actually it is more common with women than it is with men for various reasons, some of them biological and some of them that, you know, women are often subject to a lot of abuse in this country. The difference between uh, traditional, quote unquote, PTSD and complex PTSD is that you can get traditional PTSD from a single traumatic event. So if you are hit by a car, you can get PTSD. Um, Complex PTSD is when the trauma happens over and over and over over the course of many years. So it's kind of like if you were hit by a car once a week, for years. Um, And unless you have like really, really terrible luck, usually that means that you are in a place where you may have an abuser um, or you may be living in a war zone. Mine comes from intense physical and emotional child abuse and neglect. So tell me a little bit about how that, that relational element the way that CPTSD, unlike PTSD, tends to involve relationships with other people, how does that affect the way that it shows up for for you, for other sufferers? So again, if you have traditional PTSD, um, a couple, let's say, of traumatic events, um, you have uh, triggers surrounding those events. Like say you were hit by the car um, and let's say it was in an intersection with a Dunkin' Donuts or something like that. Dunkin' Donuts might be a trigger. Maybe the make and model of the car, a gray Volkswagen, uh, would be a trigger. Maybe the color of the sweatshirt that somebody comes out of their car wearing, that might be a trigger. And these are all encoded in our brain, um, both consciously and subconsciously, which would mean that if you saw, whatever, a Dunkin' Donuts, you might freak out without quite understanding why. So... The problem with complex PTSD is when you are uh, abused dozens or hundreds of times, the number of conscious and subconscious triggers explodes and is immense to the point where you sort of um, are afraid of the world itself 
or afraid of people, you have a really hard time trusting others. If you haven't been protected by people hundreds and hundreds of times, people themselves can become pretty scary. And I think that's something that's pretty clear both from what you just said and from the book itself is if you have CPTSD, you can't really avoid your triggers the way that you potentially could if you got hit by a car and that was the source of your trauma. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. They pervade each every aspect of your life. Yeah. How does that figure into the way that it gets treated? The way that it gets treated is essentially, well, I think exposure therapy is a big thing for traditional PTSD. That really isn't so possible with complex PTSD. You can't just expose somebody to everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's part of it. Um, I think also a big part of complex PTSD is um, trying to believe that you are lovable, that you're not a bad person. I -hmm. think a lot of sufferers of complex PTSD turn a lot of self-blame and self-loathing inward because a lot of them have gone through a lot of abuse and that's rewired their brains. And so I think Mindfulness is really helpful for complex PTSD just to like calm down that brain and body wherever, whenever it might be agitated. Being able to relearn healthy self-parenting talk. Um, so being able to talk to oneself when they're really feeling like they might hate themselves or they're feeling really scared. And also just kind of relearning how to be in community with other people, how to love and be loved mm. and sort of relearn how to navigate conflicts and relationships. So you were diagnosed in 2018, but you had been with your therapist for, I think it was eight years at that point in time. Is that right? Yeah. And my understanding is that she had had sort of diagnosed you on her end uh, long before she told you. How did receiving that diagnosis affect you? And how did you see CPTSD showing up in your life at the point when you were diagnosed and and when you were looking back? How did you how did you see that in your your sort of earlier narrative? I was I was really shocked, obviously, about my diagnosis. I think she had mentioned it when I first came in like eight years ago when I was 22 years old. And she probably said, you know, you have complex PTSD. And I only heard the PTSD part. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm not a soldier. Not, not really. So um, and I had completely missed the complex part. So Googling it, I think. Well, she said it. She told me this at the end of a session, too. So she was. She told me I had a complex PTSD and then immediately was like, all right, bye. Um, so I was Yeesh. left to Google this alone. And what was on the internet at the time was really dismal and depressing and awful. It was just really pathologizing all of the horrible symptoms, all the things that were terrible about me because I had complex PTSD. It was really upsetting. And it kind of shed a new light on everything in my life. Um, I just went all the way back to the beginning and looked at everything through the lens of me being broken. And I was like, well, this is why I didn't get that job, or this is why Mm. so-and-so hates me, or this is why this relationship, you know, didn't pan out, which was not a particularly healthy way of looking at things. Yeah. I'm I'm curious about that because you, you talk at several points in the book about that sort of hopelessness that you felt when you first received your diagnosis and that feeling of being pathologized um, in the descriptions that you were seeing of CPTSD. Can, can you share a little bit more about that? Like, wh- where does that come from? What are the what are the pieces of it that felt so wounding and pathologizing? 
a therapist eventually told me that um, the crux of complex PTSD is this deep set belief that uh, you do not deserve love, right? Mm -hmm. And then also some of the symptoms that I saw online were hopelessness and despair. (laughs) So the other symptoms, right, are um, aggressive, but not able to tolerate aggression, an inability to maintain long-term relationships, not being able to self-soothe and being emotionally erratic, you know, being on a relentless search for a savior. I mean, you read things like this, if you already believe deep down that you're not worthy of love, and then you read this list of horrific flaws about yourself, it's only going to reinforce that and send you on this double pit of despair. And then you're going to be like, oh, no, but this is this is part of the CPTSD, too, is that I have a tendency to despair. But what else am I going to do? I just want to die. Oh, my God. So it's like, like this bottomless pit that you can't crawl your way out of. Yeah, it sounds very painful. Yeah. I'm curious why it was important for you to tell your story of CPTSD. Because of this exact thing, right? I All mm-hmm. I could find on the internet were these really dismal, depressing accounts. I, I, I searched for, I healed from complex PTSD. Nothing. You know, I, I searched for celebrities with complex PTSD. Nothing. Mm-hmm. My job was that I created first-person narratives stories on This American Life and Snap Judgment to to build empathy and to show people that they weren't alone in their experiences. I featured people of color on air. I featured people who were neuroatypical. Um, and I featured prisoners, you know, just to, just to build empathy. And I would always get messages from people saying, thank you for doing a story about XYZ. Like I thought I was the only one and now I'm like, I'm affirmed and not alone. Great. So that's what I wanted. I'd spent my whole life doing this. I needed this now and I couldn't find it. There were no first person stories. There was nothing normalizing. And I told myself, if I ever heal from this thing, I'm going to make that first person narrative. I'm going to make it hopeful. I'm going to make something that doesn't allow people to just tumble in this dark black hole that that gives them the footholds Mm. to climb their way out. I'm curious if you see a relationship between your childhood experiences that that sort of led you to the the, the trauma that sort of led you to that CPTSD diagnosis and the work that you do, right? Like you just talked about this uh, desire in your work to create empathy in, in people for a wide variety of different experiences. That seems to me like it, it could very easily be something that is related to a childhood where you're not getting a lot of empathy. Yeah, I guess so. Probably. I think I had a very narrow worldview um, when I was a kid. And telling stories I loved it because it opened up my worldview so much. I think my parents had a very narrow idea of what was right and wrong, um, and I was punished for being wrong all the time. You know, we grew up in a really religious household, so there was all of that. So I think really talking to, you know, former prisoners or um, people that I just would not interact with on a daily basis, like polygamists, even white supremacists eventually gave me a really nuanced version of the world and allowed me to see that people are not so simple 
that I could actually empathize with and, you know, enjoy the company of people that I had not expected to, not white supremacists, <laughs> but, you know, um, th things like former drug dealers telling me their stories right. and just being able to laugh with them and, you know, totally be on the same page with them. That really took the world from being a black and white binary to a million different shades of gray, I think. And I think what was really helpful in healing from complex PTSD was going, was seeing complex PTSD itself as not being a black and white binary, binary of being a good mm -hmm. or a bad person, but understanding that this condition has a lot of shades of gray. It has advantages, it has disadvantages. You know, it's painful, but it can also be really beautiful. Yeah, so tell me about that. What are some of the what are some of the ways that your understanding of CPTSD has changed? And particularly moving from that sort of initial feeling of sort of despair and hopelessness and like this is only bad things about me. How has that changed since you have started on this journey and started to research it more and and started to go through your own healing process? I think there are a lot of really great things about complex PTSD. I think that the exaggerated emotions like anger or sadness are not necessarily bad inherently. In fact, they can be great motivators. I know that in my life anyway, I've been, I've really stuck up for people and had courage in in scary moments because of my anger or sense of justice, you know? Yeah. I think that during the pandemic, I really could see the benefits of complex PTSD because you know, PTSD is a social construct and it's only a mental illness yeah. in times of peace. In times of war, PTSD is an adaptation. It is literally an evolutionary thing in our genes that has been put there for us to survive, right? That The part where you talked about um, the way that CPTSD... I don't know if prepared you for the pandemic is exactly right, but the way that it served you in the sort of early days of the pandemic really resonated for me as someone who has OCD, which of course, right, mm. like so much of our understanding of OCD is there's, there's similarities in the sort of hypervigilance and the um, tendency to uh, that, that sort of outside vision of OCD as something that is taking things too far, taking things that might be useful too far. Right. But of course, in the early days of the pandemic, who is better prepared than somebody who is constantly looking at the world and doing threat assessments? Yeah. If you're, who, if you're yeah. obsessively washing your hands in the pandemic, you're not hypervigilant, you're just vigilant. Yeah. <laughs> you're doing what everyone else is learning to do in that moment for the first time. Right. Which yeah. I think gave me a head, uh, like a leg up, because actually when a lot of people were sort of encountering this paralyzing fear for the first time, they were like almost non-functional. Whereas I, on the other hand, I was like, I've been living with this fear forever and I am good. <laughs> Being Having complex PTSD also makes you a really good dissociator, which is not mm -hmm. super great for like feeling feelings a lot of the time, but... I mean, again, if you're trying to survive, being able to put all of your fear and whatever in a little tiny box and just do, 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 go around your day, that's, I was <laughs> very eerily good at that at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I was cooking, I was like keeping people safe, I was like hoarding beans and I was, you know, like. <laughs> so many beans, so much rice. Yeah, but I was 
making really delicious dinners and I was getting a lot of work done. You know, I, I wrote this book. I started writing this book in February 2020 and I basically wrote it in the year of the pandemic. So I was like eerily productive. Again, pretty super powery. So I, I kind of want to talk about that productivity because, right, like it, it's something that you talk about in the book quite a bit. The way that your sort of success and your your work ethic kind of hid from or allowed you to hide aspects of the trauma that you'd been through from yourself. Mm -hmm. Can you just can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I think success has always been uh, bred into me as what it is to be good. I mean, mm. when I was six years old, my mother would force me to write these journals. And if I, you know, messed up there, the possessive, and there, the location, she would beat me. Mm. And so I was, I learned very early on that you have to do things right and get things perfect in order to be good and to be safe. And it seemed like the real world um, validated that, obviously, because we live in a capitalist society. We live in a Protestant yeah. society. And it's like the harder you work and the better you do, the more you're going to get ahead in life. Um, and I think my my mother actually was sort of preparing me for that capitalist society in the way that she assumed was correct. And uh, as an immigrant, I think she saw this as like really critical because, you know, I was... I there's that whole thing, you know, you, you need to work twice as hard, you need to be three times as good. So, and I was in a community, an immigrant community, where that was very, everyone sort of shared this twisted idea. And we were all competing for, you know, UC spots. Hmm. I grew up in San Jose, California. I think that I was, I actually got very good at being successful and the thing about being successful is even if you are a hot mess and you're drinking every night and you're you know clearly having train wreck relationships over and over with boys it doesn't like none of that matters because of our weird capitalist society because they see yeah. well oh but she's on the radio oh but she you know has like fancy bylines oh, but she makes X amount of money. She has an IRA, so she can't be that much of a hot mess. She's got to have it totally together. Um, so I was able to hide the fact that I was like severely traumatized from myself and from everyone around me for a long time by being an exceptionally hard worker. The second and fourth Sundays of the month, KSQD presents Faith Matters, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Faith Matters is an interfaith discussion with leaders from a variety of religious and spiritual traditions. The discussion is wide-ranging and respectful, and call-ins are welcome. Tune in to Faith Matters, Sunday evening at 6, on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer and radio producer Stephanie Fu, whose memoir, What My Bones Know, chronicles her journey to understand and heal from CPTSD. There's something I saw in, in another interview with you where you talked about um, how for – in that sort of – in the context of that sort of intergenerational immigrant, immigrant trauma that for your parents' generation – or sorry, for, for your peers in your generation, they sort of got a message from their parents that the way that they escape that cycle was by being successful. Mm -hmm. But of course, right, like that, that feeds exactly into all of these kinds of toxic social – 
constructs that that you were just mentioning, right? Like it, it it teaches this lesson of yes, you can escape your trauma through work, but of course, it it's still sort of ingrained there. You know, you can't escape your trauma through work. It's eventually it's going to creep up on you. It's going to pop up, and um, as it did for me, at a certain point, my trauma got the best of me and was so loudly screaming in the back of my head that I wasn't able to work anymore. And then I wasn't able to hide it. And then I was screwed. And so that moment was, uh, I think it was, it, was it also in 2018 or was it a few years later? I'm trying to remember. That was 2018, yeah. Yeah. And it was also a moment when you were, when you were working for This American Life, when you had a boss who was, I think, kind of toxic at best. And when you were working on a lot of some of some of those stories that you talked about, right? like trying to create, if not empathy, at least understanding for white supremacists, um, which, you know, it, it's, it just seems like it is in many ways a re-traumatizing task. Mm-hmm. How did those factors conspire to make that the moment for you? You know, 2017 had been really hard. Uh, obviously, as for most journalists, it can it had been very difficult um, because of the election of Trump. Um, there was just so much racism, and and newsrooms like really wanted people of color to report more on racism, and so they were forcing us mm. to like do think pieces and like talk to racists and or like talk to victims of racism, and it wasn't just like you know bring in a story of a black woman or an Asian woman having a great time living life. It was always like bring in a story of an Asian woman who has been hate crimed, (laughs) you know? Mm. Um, So yeah, reporting on that, reporting on like climate change and a possible pandemic and nuclear war and all of that, it just, put me in a place where I just, like didn't have hope anymore. I, I didn't know why humanity continued to exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it was just because I was just such in a triggered state all the time. Like life was already hard as it was. And then add CPTSD on top of that and then add your boss constantly yelling at you on top of that. It, it was just a nightmare. And so at that point you did – you decided to take time off from your sort of mainstream professional pursuits and focus full time on healing. What did that decision look like for you? Um, I mean, it wasn't much of a decision, honestly. I, again, like I was almost unable to toe work very much because I was so uh, triggered all the time. I was crying at the office. And then I got the diagnosis, complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, I guess I'm completely broken human being. Uh, so I need to just retreat from the world and fix myself and I not, and not see anyone or do anything until I come out the other side and I'm not the worst person to have ever lived. (laughs) (laughs) What I truly believed about myself, which was not true, of course. No. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences seeking out therapy? In the book, I think you talked about being a little bit naive in that respect going into the process, not really knowing what to look for. What did you learn that might help others who are seeking to find a trauma-informed therapist? I don't know if I was necessarily naive. Um, I had already seen a bunch of therapists in my life. 
I just think that finding a therapist in America is a really difficult prospect, regardless of whether Mm -hmm. you're naive or not. I mean, even now, if I were to find a new therapist, which honestly I am on the hunt for, I'm not happy about it. (laughs) Yeah. There just aren't very many trauma-informed therapists, but um, I would suggest you look for a therapist who is trained in treating complex PTSD, who specifically knows about complex PTSD. There are a bunch of different um, methodologies that have worked a little bit for me. I think just understanding that you might have to try a bunch of different therapists and a bunch of different methodologies before you find the right one that works. Like I cycled through EMDR and IFS and uh, rupture repair and CBT and like all of them helped a little bit. But it was the Hmm. combination of kind of trying all of them, I feel like, that really helped me. So just understanding that you have to find – you might have to cycle through a few people. And um, if you really don't trust your therapist, if they give you bad vibes, don't waste your time sticking with them. Just try and find someone new. Okay. So I think now would be a good time to have you read a little excerpt from the book so that we can maybe get a little bit more into the the writing itself. Sure. So before you do, can you just set up what you're going to read? Yeah. So this is from the prologue of my book. It's kind of what we just went over in terms of like the moment of me being diagnosed and my meltdown surrounding that. I've suffered from anxiety and depression since I was 12 years old. The pain is a fanged beast that I've battled a hundred times throughout the years, and every time I think I've cut it down for good, it reanimates and launches itself at my throat again. But in recent years, I've convinced myself that this battle was completely pedestrian. I mean, 20-something millennials are all really stressed out, aren't they? Isn't depression just shorthand for the human condition? Who isn't anxious here in New York, the capital of neuroticism? That is, until I turn 30. One by one, I'd watched my erratic friends hit 30 and quickly become adults. They reported that they had less energy, so they stopped caring as much about what other people thought and settled into themselves. Then they bought beige linen pants and had babies. I waited for that mature, elevated calm, but my 30th birthday was months ago, and if anything, I care more than ever. I care about shopping cart placement and plastic in the oceans and being a good listener. I care about how I seem to mess everything up all the time. I care and I care and I hate myself for it. My friends got one thing right, though. I'm so tired now. 30 years on this earth, and I've been sad at least half that time. On my subway rides to work, I stare at the supposedly neurotic masses who are calmly staring at their phones and think, maybe I'm different from them? Maybe something is wrong with me. In the past week, I've been scrolling through various mental illnesses on WebMD, searching for symptoms that sound familiar to find an answer. Now, near the end of my session with Samantha, after we've exhausted the usual pep talks and affirmations, I gather up my courage to ask about my internet diagnosis. Do you think I'm bipolar? Samantha actually laughs. You're not bipolar, I'm sure of it, she says. And that's when she asks, do you want to know your diagnosis? I don't yell, lady, I've been seeing you for a damn decade. Yes, I want to know my damn diagnosis. Because Samantha taught me about appropriate communication. Thanks, Samantha. Instead, I say, yes, of course. Something in her jaw becomes determined and her gaze is direct. You have complex PTSD from your childhood and it manifests as persistent depression and anxiety. There's no way someone with your background couldn't have it, she says. 
The first thing I do after our Skype window closes is bring up Google. I've never heard of complex PTSD. Surprisingly, there aren't that many results. I go from Wikipedia to a government page about CPTSD as it relates to veterans. I read the list of symptoms. It is very long. And it is not so much a medical document as it is a biography of my life. The difficulty regulating my emotions, the tendency to overshare and trust the wrong people, the dismal self-loathing, the trouble I have maintaining relationships, the unhealthy relationship with my abuser, the tendency to be aggressive but unable to tolerate aggression from others. It's all true. It's all me. The more I read, the more every aspect of my personhood is reduced to deep diagnostic flaws. I hadn't understood how far the disease had spread, how complete its takeover of my identity was. The things I want, the things I love, the way I speak, my passions, my fears, my zits, my eating habits, the amount of whiskey I drink, the way I listen, and the things I see. Everything, everything, all of it, is infected. My trauma is literally pumping through my blood, driving every decision in my brain. It is this totality that leaves me frantic with grief. For years, I've labored to build myself a new life, something very different from how I was raised. But now, all of a sudden, every conflict I've encountered, every loss, every failure and foible in my life can be traced back to its root. Me. I am far from normal. I am the common denominator in the tragedies of my life. I am a textbook case of mental illness. The orange walls of my office begin to close in on me. I don't belong here. I don't belong anywhere. I try to stay another couple of hours at my desk in a desperate attempt to prove to myself that I'm capable of a full workday, but I can't see my computer screen. My coworkers, laughing outside my door, sound like jackals. I grab my coat and rush out of the building into the cold air, but even outside I haven't escaped. With every step, one word echoes in my head. Broken. 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 For ten years, I thought I could outrun my past, but today I realize that running isn't working. I need to do something else. I need to fix this. Fix myself. To revisit my story, one that has until now relied on lies of omission, perfectionism, and false happy endings. I need to stop being an unreliable narrator. I need to look at myself, my behaviors, and my desires with an unflinching, meticulous eye. I need to tease apart the careful life I have crafted for myself, the one that is threatening to unravel at any minute. And I know where I have to begin. Every villain's redemption arc begins with their origin story. Thank you for reading that. Join KSQD every Wednesday morning for the award-winning program On Being, hosted by Krista Tippett. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Each week, On Being explores these questions with a new discovery about the immensity of our lives. On Being airs Wednesday at 9 a.m. here at K-Squid 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer and radio producer Stephanie Fu, whose memoir, What My Bones Know, chronicles her journey to understand and heal from CPTSD. So there's an immediacy to your writing in this book, and I think especially in this prologue, but early on in general, that I find really striking. It's first person. It is written largely in present tense. The style is fairly colloquial. You, you know, you use slang. You use words that you actually use to speak. How did you think about how you would present your story and what what kind of style you would use to write it? Honestly, I, I mean, God help me if I were ever to 
try and write fiction. This is my <laughs> writing voice. This is the only voice I know how to write in. It's great that you and other people happen to like it. Um, it's, it's very conversational because I was trained up in the radio way. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I think it does um, that I find very interesting given a lot of what you've told me about yourself and your sort of approach to storytelling and, and your sort of experiences. I think writing with that immediacy puts readers in a mind that they're going along and living that experience with you. You talk a lot about dissociation as something that people with CPTSD are good at. This is a writing style that breaks away from dissociation. It sort of forces you to be in the moment with the person who is writing. Hmm. Very interesting. I like that. <laughs> I think that's why I was curious if it was a, if it, if it was a choice, right? Because I think that I could very easily see that being something that it certainly helps your story. We'll put it that way. <laughs> I think there are parts of it that are uh, based on very stream of consciousness journals that I was writing at the time. Mm. A lot of the book is based on me just going back and stealing things from those journals. So that doesn't surprise me that the immediacy might actually be the immediacy of me writing my raw feelings in my in my diary. I'm curious how how the experience of those two things compared for you, right? Like how when you were writing in your diary, presumably you're writing primarily for yourself. What did, what did that feel like compared to writing something that is telling your story to other people? Yeah, that's obviously it's two different things. One is totally for myself. One is just like stream of consciousness, just getting ideas out there. And the other one is with an audience in mind. It is a voice that is uh, thinking about plot and making it exciting and like what parts of this are extraneous and am I being going on too long here? I always say that, you know, the first two years I just wrote purely in a cathartic way for healing. I focused entirely on healing. I wasn't focusing on writing a book. Right. Um, and then when it came time to write the book, I had all the source material of research and diaries and things like that. And then it really kind of just felt like work. It felt like putting together a radio story, which is the thing that I did for work for the past 10 years. I, I don't know if the healing, if writing was necessarily cathartic in that way. The cathartic part was actually healing. You talk at several points in the book about the epigenetics of trauma and particularly intergenerational trauma suffered by especially non-white immigrants. I'm curious how learning about your family's experiences and your family's history affected the way that you thought about your own trauma and how that affected your approach to healing from it. I think, you know, that self-loathing that I had, I've previously uh, noted, there is some aspect of just like giving up. <laughs> I mean, mm. I, I learned that there's a tremendous amount of trauma in my family from a secret war that nobody told me that my grandparents had lived through, um, during which my, my grandfather was imprisoned for five years. My grandmother had gone to jail. My family had gone through, you know, multiple occupations by colonizers who did not have their best interests at stake. They survived conflict and famine. And, you know, some of what is in my blood is beyond me and it's beyond my parents. It is like a sociopolitical minefield that I don't necessarily have agency over. And so I did think, I do think that that alleviated some small aspect of that self-loathing. Mm -hmm. 
But, you know, it didn't stop me from trying to reclaim some agency over that. There's this Chinese saying in the book that I um, that I quote on the last pages, which is, a third of the world is under the control of heaven, a third is under the control of the environment, and a third is in your hands. And, you know, I try to take responsibility for the third that's in my hands and understand that there are thirds that I don't have agency over. Yeah, I think that's something interesting about most forms of anxiety and especially anxiety that sort of stems from trauma is one big feature of it is hyper-responsibility. Mm-hmm. This tendency to take, you know, take that third that is what's in your control and try to expand it out to the everything. Mm-hmm. How did you work with that? I mean, I still do that. Like, let's be real. I still have complex PTSD. <laughs> like, I still have intense anxiety and the f- feeling that I like can control everything. I had a cast on my hand, though, um, a couple years ago. And I remember writing on the cast, um, control does not equal safety, <laughs> mm. which was helpful to sometimes look at when I was, like, obsessing over something and being like, well, yeah. No matter how hard I try, it was because like, I mean, the reason why I had that injury on my hand anyway is because I was like trying so hard to do yoga every day. Um, And then like I, during doing down dog or something, I dislocated my thumb. Oh gosh. (laughs) So like, you know, you can try to be good all the time, but it does not necessarily mean that it guarantees your safety, which is kind of an important thing to sit down and recognize sometimes when you realize that you might be obsessing over something you have no control over. So you did a lot of research on trauma. Um, I think first as part of your healing process and and maybe also some additionally for this book. What did you learn that surprised you? I mean, everything. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot in this book that surprised me. I I went into it thinking that like I was a brain-damaged mess who was going to die early and was a terrible person. And I came out on the other side thinking like, oh, you know, there are real advantages to this. I mean, there's severe disadvantages. Like, don't get me wrong. Don't abuse your children. Um, But, (laughs) you know, I am surprised by how powerful I, Hmm. I am, I guess, despite everything. And I think... I'm surprised by, again, like having a full spectrum of emotions, how valuable that is in life, Mm. that to be truly like mentally healthy is not to be happy and joyous every moment of your life. That's kind of like deranged, quite frankly. To be mentally healthy is to feel anger when you should feel anger and feel sadness when you should feel sadness and be able to feel happiness too, just like almost kind of being like erratic uh, emotionally and feeling the appropriate emotion whenever it comes up is like the true, is to be truly healthy. And I think I'm closer to that than I've ever been. You had a, uh, I mean, you had a bunch of different therapeutic experiences, but you had a pretty unique therapeutic experience with Dr. Ham, both in the way that you found him and in the way that you the way that you created and used artifacts from your therapy sessions and how those figured into the therapy itself. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about both about what that experience was and how seeing your words and your therapist's words written out 
changed your understanding of what was happening both in the sessions and in your brain? Yeah. So uh, Dr. Hom allowed me to record all of our sessions, which is great. And then immediately after each session, I would run down to the cafe downstairs, plug in all my audio into, you know, Temi, have it transcribed, um, and then cut and paste that into a Google Doc where I would like clean it up and make it all nice. And then I would share it with Dr. Hom, and then we would both start commenting on the Google Doc. And um, it was really, really fascinating because when you're in the middle of a conversation, you know, I think things fly by that you're just like, wait, how did how did that happen? Or why was that so upsetting? Or, mm. you know, when you're triggered, especially you don't have total grasp over what is true and what is really going on around you. And I think really being able to microanalyze what was going on in my relationships, it helped me understand how I was being perceived. It helped me understand when when I hid myself from other people, when I overshared uh, with other people, and helped me kind of analyze how better to manage that, how to allow myself to be seen while seeing other people in their truth and how to like sort of question too when when there's like a weird disjointedness in the conversation or mismatch to be able to say like, hey, what just happened there? I'm curious. Let's sort of like, you know, Google Docs this in real life. Like, mm. can we can we figure out why we were mismatched or are you uncomfortable or like what's going on in your head, you know, rather than just sort of plowing through uncomfortable moments. It really allowed me to understand how to better be in conflict and resolve conflicts with others. One of the things that's really struck uh, really kind of stuck with me since I finished reading your book is in, in your conversations with Dr. Hum, you, he talks to you at some point about um, rupture and repair and specifically that uh, people who undergo the kind of trauma that you went through frequently only learn how to approach a, a repair as like a one-way process rather than a two-way process. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious, like what what are we talking about when we say repair there and how is the experience of repair different from for somebody who's experienced the kind of trauma associated with PTSD or someone who isn't. Yeah, I think, you know, it's going back to that idea of black and white versus gray, right? I think when you rupture, I think there in a person with complex PTSD, there's an automatic like let's assign fault. Um hmm. and often it's like it's probably my fault. <laughs> and so there's either like demanding apology for the fault or potentially throwing yourself in your sword and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. When really, I mean, so many of these ruptures are kind of everybody contributing a little bit in different ways. Like little cues that are passed over, small misunderstandings, somebody saying something without thinking, you know, somebody saying th something while thinking about while not being present in the conversation. And it's often these little tiny misunderstandings that can lead to larger conflicts. And the the kind of repair that Dr. Hom advocates is sort of trying to understand what the truth of the situation is, like having both people be able to engage and empathize with each other where they're at and understand where they were coming from. Um, and that means, you know, giving apologies where they're due for sure but it's more of like a two-way coming together than just like a 
this is your fault. Now, yeah, make amends. Yeah, you're not taking responsibility for literally everything in a conflict. Mm-hmm. Join KSQD the second Sunday each month for Intersections, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Intersections takes you to the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. Meet notable people in diverse fields who are asking important questions. Their experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. Tune into Intersections Sunday evening at 6, KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer and radio producer Stephanie Fu, whose memoir, What My Bones Know, chronicles her journey to understand and heal from CPTSD. In addition to your actual therapy, you talk a lot about your relationship with your partner and the ways that the ways that, that relationship in its sort of healthiness um, figured into your healing process. Can you talk about, I mean, one thing, I just find it so fascinating because, right, like so much of what CP, what causes CPTSD is that relational trauma. It seems, it seems almost obvious that like, of course, having healthy relationships has to be a big part of how we heal from it. What was that experience like for you? I mean, let's be totally honest here. Like our relationship is not like an ideal relationship. It's not totally healthy. Do those exist? Like (laughs) my husband is not a perfect dude. uh, But I will say that he is willing to work. He's like always willing to put in the work and figure out like, okay, what do we need to get to this next step? What What do we need to do to get over this conflict that we're having? Like we hate each other right now. What can we need to do? What do we need to do to like have that repair? Right. Yeah. And so we'll have like big drawn out ruptures for sure, like any other couple. And then, but there's always like, um, what can we do to make the repair? And so, you know, in my life, I had lots of like with parents and other people, it was always like, here's a rupture and bye. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so having someone who's willing to stick around and repair after that, even when it's totally my fault, is uh, really healing. There's one more thing I wanted to talk about before we wrap up. At one point, you returned to your high school with its predominantly Asian student body and predominantly white faculty and staff to find that the majority of teachers are oblivious to the widespread trauma experienced by their students. I'm curious how that affected you and your understanding both of your own experiences of there but also of the sort of sociological context surrounding a lot of that sort of intergenerational immigrant trauma yeah i mean obviously this affirms this idea that like we were a community of people who felt as if we could erase our trauma with performance which is part cultural and part, you know, part our culture and part American culture, like American culture cannot escape unscathed from that. I mean, that is the value that Uncle Sam tries to bestow upon this country when you arrive is like you can work hard, you can get rich and you can be anyone you want to be, which is not necessarily true. You can't outrun, you know, generations of 
generational trauma necessarily. So I also think that in particular in the Bay Area, um, with its immense Asian immigrant population, a lot of that can get erased by just the model minority myth. Mm. Just teachers and people thinking, oh, these are high-performing people. These are hardworking people. Um, what trauma? You know, what mental illness? It seems like they're great. They're the best students. They're getting the best scores. And there's um, a lot of that means that um, Asian mental health issues are papered over a lot and a lot of students are suffering tremendously. And I think that um, teachers really need to re-examine the way that they approach Asian American students. So you've written this book. It's incredible. It, uh, you know, seen so many people talk about how helpful it is um, in, in doing, in how it achieves many of the things you wanted to achieve and sort of shedding light on CPTSD and providing a vision of it that is not entirely despairing and, you know, it contains a fair bit of hope. I'm curious if your experiences, both on your own journey and in writing this book, have changed the way you think about what you want to do next. Yeah, I mean, they've certainly inspired the next book that I hope to write. I would love to write a book about um, alternative forms of trauma. I kind of want to call it The Case Against Therapy. <laughs> Hmm. or the case against the current dogma of psychotherapy, but let's make it catchy. Um, <laughs> and uh, explaining how wide-ranging therapy can be and like a lot of different uh, culturally appropriate relevant therapies that um, might help people who don't respond well to talk therapy actually yeah. heal. Well, I look forward to it. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. You can buy the book from penguinrandomhouse.com or your local indie bookstore, and you can learn more about Stephanie from her website, stephaniefoo.com, and she's on Twitter at I'm on the Radio or on Instagram at foofoofoo. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.